This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 95, Think Long Range, a tribute to Nelson Nash, Part 1. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious. Be stable. Be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode. It's episode 95. Holly, can you believe it? It's already, we're getting close to episode 100. Yes, we are. So, uh, Holly Bach, uh, welcome. Welcome, everyone, uh, for listening. Uh, We wanted to give everyone sort of an announcement uh, and a a request for submissions, you might say. Uh, Just, you know, looking back over these last 95 and coming up on 100 episodes gets me a little misty-eyed. And I don't know if I can really, you know, uh, give any feedback or or, or reflection on it. So I need your help, everybody. I need your help. Uh, (laughs) If you'd be willing to, um, we have a a place where you can drop a, a simple... Uh, comment or audio message. And if you uh, have a mention or would like to tell us a bit about your experience with our podcast over these last almost 100 episodes, what's changed about your financial life? You know, what's your biggest aha moment? We've created a simple website. It's www.speakpipe.com forward slash NYAFP. If you go to that website, You can uh, leave us a recording. Literally, there's a big red button that says leave a voicemail, and you hit that button right on your mobile phone, no phone call needed, right on your desktop, and let us know uh, what you think has been the biggest takeaway or biggest aha moment or uh, a big aha moment, the red pill that you took when you started listening to our podcast. So once again, that website is www.speakpipe.com slash N-Y-A-F-P not your average financial podcast. So we'd love to get your feedback on that. We'll give everyone a couple weeks to submit that, but we need those submissions coming up before the deadline of July 15th, 2019. Uh, so get your submissions in. We'd love to hear your voice uh, and what, what this podcast has meant to you. So we have got some cool content to cover today and a very special and extra special guest in, sort, in, in a sort of way, right? Mm-hmm. So Nelson Nash, he's the, uh, we're, we're going to be doing a two-part series on Nelson and what he's been able to share with uh, his, uh, his audience over the many generations and decades that he's been presenting and uh, writing and speaking. He recently passed away uh, this last spring, 2019. Uh, so we felt it was, well, it was, you know, I think, only an, um, a, a joy and an obligation and a responsibility for us to continue his message and to give a sort of a, a salute or a tribute to him, the guy who really discovered and then developed what he called the infinite banking concept. He was also the author of Becoming Your Own Banker. So Nelson Nash was a popular teacher. He was a lecturer on the infinite banking concept using dividend-paying whole life insurance uh, so a little bit about Nelson, and then let's jump into his book. We're going to spend, Holly, the next two episodes really getting into, getting our hands dirty with his content and learning a bit about the the process of becoming your own banker. Mm-hmm. So who was Nelson Nash? Well, he was a native of Georgia, and he received a BS degree from forestry from the University of Georgia in 1952. Okay, so he was born in the early 30s, got his degrees in forestry, and then from 1954 to 1963, He worked as a forester consulting in eastern North Carolina. For more than 35 years, he he worked as a life insurance agent, uh, and he worked for the Equitable Equitable Life Insurance Assurance Society for the U.S. and with Guardian. 
He also was recognized with high achievements and was inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, and was a chartered life underwriter and the life member of the Million Dollar Roundtable. So he was also uh, just on the side or on the weekends, <laughs> I guess. He was a pilot for 60 years. He flew with the Army National Guard. He earned a master aviator wings during his 30 years of military service. He's been married uh, to Mary W. Nash for more than 65 years. They have three children, 10 grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. And he leaves a tremendous legacy. So uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts about uh, Nelson and, and sort of where things are today? Yeah, and so uh, just as you mentioned, Mark, Nelson did pass away earlier this year. And again, you know, we felt that because um, Nelson Nash's teachings had such a profound impact on our own personal financial lives and because he's, you know, significantly impacted the trajectory of our professional business as well, right? Like the, the whole industry and, and work that we do. Um, we knew that we had to give him a tribute on our podcast. So in this episode and the following episode, as you mentioned, Mark, we're going to be sharing our thoughts, our experiences, kind of going through his revolutionary book, Becoming Your Own Banker. We're also going to interview a number of other um, elite financial experts who built their professional careers around Nelson's discovery as well. So these financial professionals, you know, they represent tens of thousands of people across the country who benefited from the bank on yourself concept and from his um, infinite banking concept as well. So, yeah. So let's look at the book, you know. So, you know, as I look back on his book, Becoming Your Own Banker, uh, which Nelson wrote essentially in the early 2000s, you know, the first thing that really struck me, Holly, is that this is a book that just technically could have been written 150 years ago. I mean, in other words, I feel like the principles that are laid out in the book are describing this financial vehicle that's really been around, um, to Americans anyways, for over a century and a half. So I guess one of my first questions, since I, as I really started to understand what he was doing in the book, was why did it take someone so long to write this book? You know, unfortunately, the insurance industry really has put for a long time their concentration, their marketing, whatever, on the death benefit that the insurance contract uh, provides, but really neg neglected to really give a lot of uh, attention or adequately describe the financing capabilities that life insurance offers the policy owner. So what's really ironic about this is that banks have been using cash value insurance, even banks, right, have been using cash value insurance in, in, in the amount of hundreds of billions of dollars. Banks certainly understand that power of financing and using the financial tool uh, to be their own banker. So Nelson really first brought up that your need for finances during your lifetime is actually much greater than your need for life insurance protection. His book, Becoming Your Own Banker, is not about life insurance per se. Mm -hmm. It's about cash flow management. You know, it's if you can solve that need of cash flow, of financing through the instrument of dividend paying whole life insurance, you're going to control the environment where your money lives. Yep. And most everyone is familiar with the fact that you can borrow from a whole life insurance policy, right? If you've been listening to really any of our episodes right. previous mm -hmm. to this, you know that. Um, but because of how we were taught to think about paying premiums, again, because of the emphasis on the death benefit, you know, how are you how are you taught? Like, okay, how can I get the most death benefit with paying the least amount of premium as possible? So how can I get away with paying as little as possible into this policy, right? Um, but when we go about it that way, when we think about it, you know, how little premium can I get away with paying? There ends up being limited access to money inside the policy because you're not putting that much in, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, but a new way to think about, you know, kind of life insurance in general 
that Nelson was really the one that gave us was to kind of flip that mindset mindset on its head um, and think rather rather than like how little, how much premium can I pack into this? How much money can I get away with, with just throwing into this po- policy? So the more premium you pay into it, you know, into a well-designed whole life insurance policy, the more cash that is, pr- that is preserved inside the policy the, that you can then use as a financing source for yourself, your family, or even your business's needs if necessary. So that's kind of one of the revolutionary thoughts that you know Nelson first kind of came up with and um, started talking about in his book. So the book was written for the average American. You know, it wasn't written for a PhD in finance. You don't need to have some fancy degree or knowledge base to read it. It's really written um, with ideas that can make sense, um, but then also can be read and reread, and you can discover new insights every time. So it's only about eighty to eighty to ninety pages long. And so it's really not that long. You can really whip through it in an afternoon, honestly. Um, But that doesn't mean that, you know, you can just read it once in an afternoon and it's going to change your life. You know, it does kind of take that um, revisiting, coming back to it. And again, new insights, new things are going to be popping up for you each and every time you read it. Something new is going to pop out. And really the ideas that he talks about in it are are timeless. Um, The whole idea of becoming your own banker is really just to recapture that interest that you're paying to banks and finance companies for big purchases that we all are going to have to make in our lifetime. That's what makes this so powerful is it's not just, oh, if you're going to do this, oh, if you're going to do that. It's like, no, we all live and exist in a world where we need cars, we need Uh, major appliances. Oftentimes, we don't necessarily need a college education, but oftentimes people choose to go that route. But we do need a house. (laughs) You know, we need a roof over our heads. And so, you know, if you exist in our economy where that's your reality, um, Nelson's whole book is revolving around trying to help you make those purchases in the best way possible. Yeah. And going on to things like investment properties, opportunities, business equipment. I mean, the list goes on and on. We all have major capital expenses over our lifetime. If we're living and breathing in this world, you know, in the environment in which we live, we're going to have to put major cash outlays out there for various things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's important to say from the beginning that this book that he wrote is not about investing, per se. It's not about an investment vehicle, per se. It's more about how one finances the things of life, which certainly can include investments. So, I think Nelson, if you were in this recording studio today, he would be first to say, it's not about the rate of return. You know, he would say <laughs> it's not about rates of return. Yeah. Um, I mean, interest rates will go up and down in the market over our lifetimes. They'll be low one year, they'll be high another year. But the process of banking goes on and on and on, no matter what's happening. And in fact, banks are more profitable in low interest rate environments than they are in Uh, higher rate uh, interest rate environments. So if you want to hear more about that, go back to episode 49, where we talk about how banks win. And I'll give you guys a hint. It's not about the rate (laughs) of return. So it's it's about the function, the function about how to create your own banking system to reclaim the function of banking in your own life so that you can control 100% of your needs. It's about becoming your own banker. So if you, you know, if you can imagine a fish swimming around in the water Uh, If you could somehow control the environment where you live, uh, you'll be in better shape. You'll be able to avoid the hooks uh, that are uh, constantly being thrown out there by by Wall Street or the banksters. So Nelson Nash was an educator, uh, right? But he first was educated by uh, the forestry industry. Remember, he graduated from the University of Georgia in 1952 for uh, forestry. 
I think that really that the roots of his understanding of the infinite banking concept comes from his understanding of how forestry works, forestry finance. You know, this fact is that you're going to be dealing with compounding interest over a long, very long period of time with trees. Nothing goes fast, right? <laughs> uh, so you're going to be looking at this from a seed and harvest perspective. You know, you're going to put a lot of emphasis on being patient and thinking over not just one year or one month's rate of return, but over a lifetime and maybe even f four or five lifetimes, he would say. You know, he's looking to plan for at least four generations. So, you know, there's a truth with trees. You know, there's a truth with trees that you've really got to make an investment that you're not going to see any results for a very long period of time. You know, my daughter reads uh, the frog and toad books, and there's that one uh, parable of, of frog and toad where one of them, uh, you know, is a patient farmer, and then the other one goes home and plants some seeds and then, you know, looks at them for 10 seconds and then starts yelling at the seeds, grow seeds, grow. Well, he, we've got to have patience to get to the harvest. So, you know, he also looked at the, through the lens of the life insurance business. He made a really good living in the business over 30 years. And I think also he was strongly influenced by his experience as a real estate investor. So according to Nelson, the key element to real estate investing is this thing we call leverage, the magic of leverage. So if you can buy some real estate, borrow the money to pay for it, uh, the interest will grow and then eventually you'll sell the property at a, at a gain. Your only expense was the interest that you paid to the bank, right? And you get to keep the profits. That was what his financial educators, his gurus, as he said, would like to tell him. Uh, but he, he mentions, sort of as a joke, that the real estate gurus really forget to mention that leverage does not just work in one direction. It can work against you as well as you can use it, right? It can work the other way where it's leveraging against you and that's kind of what happened to him. Nelson got into bigger and bigger real estate deals. And in the late 1970s, everybody thought they were a genius in the rising real estate market at that time. And, uh, you know, it could, it could all, almost sound like pre-echoes to the 2008 crisis. He said there was no reason not to keep growing, adding more and more properties. So he kept adding more and more real estate to his portfolio. And he was paying about 9.5% on his real estate loans, which were very short-term loans. And then came the interesting fiasco of the, the early 80s, 1981 and 82, where all of a sudden the interest rates were jacked up and banks began to charge not 9%, but 23% on his half a million dollars of debt almost overnight. So that meant all of a sudden he was having to come up with $67,500 of interest he was not expecting to pay. And that, you know, that's a, a huge number by any standard, but back in the 80s, that was massive amounts of interest payments. So he went back to his financial gurus that got him in all, into all that real estate debt, and they told him to sell his properties. That was the answer they gave. But, you know, Holly, I'm trying to think, you know, who would be willing to buy a bunch of real estate in the uh, environment of 23% debt interest, right? Mm -hmm. It's not exactly a great time to be selling some properties. Yep. So simultaneously, Nelson had some wake-up calls. He had some major health issues himself. He had several family members pass away. That really got him shook to his core. So the basic idea that was revealed in the bank, uh, in the uh, infinite banking concept, he would like to, I'm sure, say is that it was really born uh, out of this dread of his own health, his own mortality, and out of the dread of the banks chasing him down and him being awake at 3 a.m. Uh, you know, he says that uh, the infinite banking concept was born over many months and at 3 a.m. in the kneeling position, praying to God. And I'd say that's probably where most of us 
if we're willing to be honest, uh, are, are most open to finally making a change uh, from what we've kind of grown up around or, or seen as sort of the, the, the typical or traditional financial way to handle our lives, right? Mm-hmm. It's only when things stop working that we're finally willing to open our eyes and, and open our minds to a new way. Yeah, and it was it was there. It was in that time, in, over those three months, um, that he discovered that he already had everything he needed to get out of his problem and to kind of get out of this trap or snare that he'd gotten himself into. But he originally wasn't able to see it because he was looking at things like everybody else. Um, but he was able to finally kind of understand and, and come to see that his life insurance policies were offering loan interest rates in the low single digits. So the banks, you know, were charging him 23%, but his life insurance policy was only going to charge him low sing- single digit um, interest. And he, and on top of that, he owned the policies, which even more so meant that he could control how he repaid that debt to the insurance company. Um, but again, you know, he was still thinking about it from the wrong perspective. He'd only been putting in pennies into his life insurance policies, um, you know, because again, how can I put as little yeah. as possible into this policy? So he didn't have enough in his you know policy cash value to really do a whole lot at that particular time. So what he did is he, again, he kind of flipped that mindset on its head. He reversed his thinking and began to pour very large premiums into his life insurance policies. And this was his way out of his financial prison and to developing that, you know, financial system we've talked about that would keep him, you know, really from ever ending up in that prison or in that same position ever again. Yeah. Well, you said it so well, Holly, you know, he was not able to see his way out because he looked at things the way everybody else did. You know, it makes me think back to that um, parable. uh, What is it? The allegory of the cave by Plato. You know, when everyone is looking uh, away from the exit and all they can see are the shadows on the wall, that's all they ever see. And that's all they ever imagine. The whole world is nothing but a, a shadow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the the guy that gets out of the, the cave is the one that's able to break free from his chains, look away from the shadows, and see a different perspective to find the way out, to find the way free. It's, it's a lot like Matrix, uh, the Matrix when Neo takes the red pill. If you're able to think different and conceive of a different reality, you're able to find your way out. And Nelson actually talks about that some. You know, he says uh, that the infinite banking concept is really nothing more than an exercise in imagination. He says actually four things. He says it's an exercise in imagination, in reason, logic, and prophecy. So we're going to dive into some of that here in just a minute. But I think imagination is something that I think children have, but over a lifetime, it's squeezed out. <laughs> I think through the traditional education systems that are out there, and I don't just mean public schools or private schools. I'm also talking about you know, the CNBCs of the world and, you know, the radio hosts of the world that are pumping out, you know, just regular uh, mainstream financial, uh, you know, education. We'll call it education today. Uh, and, and really, there's there's more to it than that, right? There's something bigger if we're willing to see it. In fact, there was a recent TED Talk that you wanted to mention, Holly, right? Yeah. So in this TED Talk, uh, Dr. George Land and Beth Jarman were commissioned by NASA to help the space agency identify and develop creative talent. So Dr. George Land said that they discovered if um, they were given a problem with which they had to come up with an imaginative and innovative solution, 98 percent, 98 percent, okay, of five-year-olds tested at the quote-unquote genius level. 
Okay, so 98% of five-year-olds were able to come up with these imaginative and innovative solutions that they were looking for. Um, so simply put, you know, their answers to how the problem should be solved were brilliant. Upon entry into the school system, though, we saw those numbers started to drop dramatically. Uh, when the team returned to test those same subjects, so same students at age 10, so they're not five years old anymore, now they're 10, the percentage of genius level, imaginative and innovative thinkers fell to an unthinkable 30%. Wow. So just in five years, we took these kids from you know 98% of them being kind of at a genius level to 30%. Amazing. But it doesn't stop there. The downward spiral continued to be demonstrated at age 15. So add another five years on. When the researchers returned, the percentage of genius level students had dropped to an abysmal 12%. So it went from 98 to 30. Now we're down to just 12%. And uh, Dr. George Land actually blames the Industrial Revolution and its burgeoning factories for the demise of creativity. Because it was during that era, uh, Land said that the natural approach to teaching and learning led educators to develop, you know, factories for human beings, um, too, you know, called schools. So we could manufacture people that could work well in the factories. So it's almost like the Industrial Revolution led to this thinking where our schools should be like a factory um, rather than something that is instilling imagination and innovation into the students. So as a result, um, Land's team really was not surprised to find uh, that only 2% of adults, um, so they were testing at age 31, still retain their ability to, to think imaginatively with creativity and innovation. And I would suppose that the 2% probably have the, you know, one, either they're, the, they're exiled from their communities because the community doesn't understand them, or two, they're so incredibly wealthy and successful that <laughs> no one imagines they could ever attain that level of success. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. And, and we could include the show notes in our show notes, the link to that TED Talk if you'd like to watch it. Um, but let's talk about imagination for a minute. Nelson really takes us through this really powerful imagination exercise. So let's take a moment and let's walk through it with Nelson here. Uh, he says, imagine you are both the consumer and the seller of the same thing. So take a minute. How often does that happen? Very rarely, right? Uh, you know, I'm thinking back to when I sold lemonade uh, on my front porch. You know, I'm, I was both the consumer and the seller of the same thing. I think I drank <laughs> more than I probably sold at that point. But uh, <laughs> if you owned a grocery store, you know, this would make perfect sense since everybody eats groceries, consumes groceries, but, you know, somebody has to get out there and sell them and distribute them. So if you're a grocery store owner, you're going to take a lot of diligent care to research where you want to put that property for the grocery store. You're going to hire the very best staff. You're going to hang banners and ads all over town. And, and everything you're going to need to set up is going to be aiming toward being a successful business someday. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy and money, of course. Merchandise that you have to produce. You've got to fill those shelves. You've got to have competitive prices. You've got to do market research. Finally, one day after all that hard work, you open the front door and the customers come in and they actually do what you hope they're doing uh, would do. And, and they load up their carts and they pay the cashiers. What do you know? With real cash <laughs> and walk out the front door. And that's awesome. You feel great, right? Now, why is Nelson Nash going to take us through a thought exercise like the grocery store? Owning a grocery store, does he really care or think it's important for us to know about the cost of being a grocer? No, no, it's not about that. It's about the cost of setting up anything that's that's meaningful to us over our, a long period of time. His life insurance uh, analogy here is that it takes some money to put into a life insurance policy. It's not a free bucket of money, right? It, it, there is a 
power in patience. You know, it's learning the power of patience and the power of planting and harvesting. So back to the grocery store analogy. All right, so we've, we've had our very first day, we've been successful, we sold a bunch of groceries, and hey, what do you know? At the end of the day, your stomach is rumbling, you know, you kind of got that need for that, um, that quick bite of food. So are you gonna go to the store down the street or are you gonna go to uh, your own grocery store to buy your food? Well, of course, you got food right here. You know, you just bought it all at wholesale price. Now here's an important question. Are you gonna take that food and are you gonna walk out the back door uh, or are you going to pay for it out the front door? Are you going to take that food out the back door or walk out the front and pay for it like uh, any other customer? Your answer to that question, our listeners, is going to really have a lot to say about the success of your financial life and of your grocery store business. The difference between the front door and the back door is a very good living for yourself or going bankrupt. You can, you can either turn the inventory uh, through your own, uh, through your own uh, hands you know, with uh, walking out the back door and essentially stealing from your own grocery store or paying for it out of pocket and keeping your margins high. You see, grocery stores really operate on a very small margin. For example, a can of peas might uh, be turned over and sold 15 times just to break even. You know, if you can turn it 17 times, you know, you'll be profitable and 20 cans sold, you'll be able to retire early. But it takes a lot of energy just to get over the cost of the can of peas. It's not unlike uh, boiling water. If you guys can sort of imagine boiling water for a minute, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of electricity or fire or heat to go into this, boil, uh, this room temperature cup of water, but to get that water up to 211 degrees Fahrenheit and stop and you'll see nothing. It's just hot water. But if you get to 212 degrees Fahrenheit, all of a sudden magic, right? There's boiling water in front of your eyes. So back to the grocery store analogy, if you're taking food out of the back door and not paying for it, you're losing all that energy, all that, all that margin, and your business is going to struggle as a result. It's going to take another 15 cans of peas just to cover the one that you stole at the back door. So would you steal your own peas or would you pay the store fairly and walk out the front door? In fact, you and your family are actually captive customers of your own grocery store. So the truth is maybe you should not just pay for your own peas and groceries, but you should actually charge yourself a little extra. Anybody who's a captive customer of a, of a business knows that they're getting the raw deal, right? If they can't go anywhere else, they're gonna be a captive customer. You're gonna, get in, you're gonna end up being charged more for that privilege. So that pure profit would go immediately to making your business more profitable than every other grocery store in town whose owners are doing the human nature of walking their food out the back door and you're gonna wash the competition right out of town. So once people learn about the infinite banking concept, which is kind of what the bank on yourself concept uh, is built upon and evolved from, uh, and they figure out that insurance companies charge loan interest when you borrow against your cash value, they're, they're, they're usually objections at some point where they hear, I, I hear it all the time, Holly, you know, uh, mm -hmm. why in the world would I ever pay interest on my own money? You know, so maybe, maybe we'll have a, another conversation about that or another episode here soon. Mm -hmm. But I, I oftentimes think about the analogy of the grocery store when they bring that up. Yeah. So I think he did a really good job of explaining the problem. You know, Nelson did a good bit of study on spending habits of the American family. Uh, and since then, you know, since his book writing in the early 2000s, things really haven't changed all that much. Uh, you know, I'd say 20% of one's income was spent on transportation, 30% spent on housing, roughly 45% is spent on lifestyle. Much of that 
lifestyle expense and transportation and housing is all put on credit cards, mortgages, and bank loans. The rest is going to be financed by paying cash and thus giving up the interest you could have earned on the money otherwise. Remember that you finance everything you buy. If you pay cash, you're just giving up the interest that could have been growing on that money had you not spent it on the cars or whatever. So paying cash is not the answer. And the average person, uh, according to his research, uh, is only able to save around 5% of their income. And we've seen that recently too. It's still around 5% according to the Federal Reserve studies. So even if all your debts are at a super low interest rate, let's say your car loan is at 2%, your mortgage is a, is a nice 3% like we have these days, Nelson's going to point out that it's not so much about the rate of return, a rate of interest that you're being charged, but the volume of interest that's being charged on you. You know, when you go to the doctor's office to get a vaccine or a shot, the doctor's prescription is not about like how fast does the money get or how, how fast does the shot or vaccine or injection go into you, but it's the volume of that injection, right? Too little and it won't inoculate you. It won't, you know, won't protect you. And if you get too much, it's going to kill you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, um, in talking about kind of that mortgage, a typical 30-year fixed rate mortgage might only be, you know, 4% APR, but the total amount of interest paid relative to your home's value is around 100%. In other words, wow. you're paying for that house twice over 30 years. You're paying double. So once to buy the house originally, and then once to pay the bank interest. So they're getting as much interest from you as the home costs <laughs> in the first place. Just for the privilege of being in debt to that bank. Wow. Yep. And with the interest payments making up the vast majority of your mortgage in the first 10 to 15 years, the bank is getting their portion first. So the bank is making sure that not only are you paying for this home twice, but actually the first time you buy the house, you're just paying them. And wow. then the second time you buy the house is when you're actually buying the house, you know, in, the, in you know, in, in reality. Mm. Um, and so if you add up all the interest paying out, according to the U.S. Uh, Commerce Bureau, the average American spends 35 cents of every dollar that they make on interest payments. Mm. So Nelson brings this up, you know, his pastime of being an airplane pilot over 50 years. By the way, uh, if he's flying after 50 years, I'm not sure I'd get in an airplane with a guy who's been flying anything for 50 years. I mean, great that he's that experienced, but okay, anyway, way to go, <laughs> Nelson, for 50 years of flying. That's amazing. A anyway, so he says that airplanes do not fly in a vacuum. You know, they're in an environment. You know, the airplane lifts off. It must, of, cor of course, it's got to fly through an environment, air pressure, wind speed, everything. So imagine you're, you're piloting an airplane that can fly 100 miles an hour and you want to go from New York to Chicago. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Chicago. The only problem is that you've got this headwind coming right at you from uh, west to east, barreling down on your airplane at 345 miles an hour. The environment, the airspeed, is pushing you, no matter how hard your little airplane might try, out into the Atlantic Ocean, not towards Chicago right? Uh, you know, you're flying into the wind at 100 miles an hour, but it's pushing you back at 345. So you're going out into the ocean at 245 miles an hour. If you want to get to Chicago from New York, you, you know, get your airplane on the ground and, and maybe start walking. You'll get there faster. But maybe a better thing to do is, once again, patience. Think long range. Once the wind dies down and there's no headwind, now you can fly your plane from New York to Chicago as fast as your little airplane can fly at a ground speed of 100 miles per hour. And you'll be eating deep dish pizza by dinner time. <laughs> now, going at 100 miles an hour for most people, 
Nelson calls this the arrival syndrome, which we'll talk more about in the next episode, is where the mind says, hey, we're doing as great as we can. We cannot do anything better than this. This is our best situation. Our mutual funds are doing great. We've got all of our debts paid off. We've got all of our cash, you know, spending for major purchases set aside for our next car or kids' college. And we meet people, Holly, like this all the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is this really the best we can do with our money? 100 miles an hour of our, of our little airplane? No, of course not. If you can keep that airplane on the ground in New York for just a little bit longer and let the wind get behind you, now all of a sudden you've got a tailwind. Let's say you've got a tailwind of 345 miles an hour, plus your little airplane's engine can push another 100 miles an hour. Now we're talking going on a ground speed of 445 miles an hour. Now you're really smoking it, right? You'll be to Chicago in no time. Mm -hmm. Most people think everything you do in the financial world is just gonna be compared to what everybody else is doing. 95% of America is flying their airplane into a headwind at 345 miles an hour. They have debt up to their waistline or up to their eyeballs maybe, and they're just slaves to a bank. What little they can save is going into a 401k, right? If I sit around the water cooler at work or if I'm talking to friends uh, after hours, and the concept or the topic of money comes up, what's going to be talked about, right? How much am I getting on my rate of return in my 401k or brokerage account? Mm -hmm. They're flying their, plan their plane unknowingly out into the ocean with no way out. A small, very small portion of Americans will end up paying cash for everything. And they have their airplane moving along at 100 miles an hour. Uh, but they're stuck on the arrival syndrome, missing out on the real power of having a financial environment work in their favor. But the true financial revolutionaries, and listen very carefully, listeners, the true financial revolutionaries have become the banker and now have a tailwind. And now they're moving their plane at 690 miles an hour, right? That's a difference of 690 miles an hour between the headwind and the tailwind. This is the not your average financial thinking. This is what we mean when we say bank on yourself. So how does this all actually work, Holly? You know, how do you become your own banker? What's the innate problems and challenges that people come across when they try to take on this powerful mindset? Well, people are going to have to keep listening to find out. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> yeah. So next time we're going to kind of finish reviewing um, Nelson's book and, and what he's written. And we'll include our thoughts on, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, um, Nelson Nash, how he's impacted our lives, the lives of our clients, and, you know, maybe even what did he leave undone um, in, in his work and in his lifetime. So um, stay tuned for our next episode. And we'll be jumping into a little bit more about Nelson Nash, his life, his work, and, and the impact that he's left behind. So want to say thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.